0: episode of Retailistic. We are so excited to be joined today by Scott Friend from Bain Capital Ventures. Scott, hello and thank you so much.
1: Very excited to be here.
0: And we have a a real keen focus today in terms of talking about the recently launched Commerce Tech List. Scott, this was a huge initiative, took many months, I, I dare say almost a year. Can you kind of, you know, take a giant step back on the kind of idea, thought process behind this. And, you know, and then we'll kind of fast forward to today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Deb, as you know, I'm a a partner at Bank Capital Ventures, and I have focused on the commerce ecosystem my whole career um, as an operator and founder of a a startup in this ecosystem, uh, and then as an investor in early stage technology companies for the last almost 20 years. And it's been amazing over the past 10 how many other venture firms and investors of all types have leaned into this ecosystem. I think it's in great measure a function of the dominance in in North America that Amazon has had and overseas that other very, very large marketplaces have had in sort of transforming the retail landscape, particularly as it relates to online commerce, but also omni-channel commerce. And that's led to a proliferation of brilliant entrepreneurs who've said, boy, we can create tools and technologies to help the rest of the universe compete more effectively. And so we've seen this incredible proliferation of startups an incredible inflow of dollars from venture capitalists to fund those startups. And what you end up with is this incredible landscape of interesting companies. But I think it's a little hard for for operators in the retail and brand world to sift through and understand who the real winners are, who the leaders are, who can really add the most value. And so, you know, as we sat back, as kind of one of the leading investors in this arena with a long heritage uh, in the commerce world, both at Bain Capital, dating all the way back to the first investment in Staples a million years ago, um, through my company Profit Logic, and now to current times, we said, "Boy, we're, we have a unique vantage point here. We get to see lots and lots of these companies." And if we can find the right collaborators who hopefully have a an objective perspective on the space, where ours might certainly be biased by our own experience, we can probably do a service for the industry by by kind of sifting the weed from the chaff and trying to highlight some of the founders and companies that we think are having the greatest impact.
0: As you thought about the kind of areas that these companies, I've, I've actually never heard anyone kind of quite put put it the way that because you have a a major platform that you've then had a lot of startups kind of basically develop and grow to support others who are either not on that platform, although it does seem like many are. Can you, can you actually unpack that a little bit in terms of, you know, and obviously there are other platforms, you know, some that are based out of Canada uh, who I always think kind of are are almost much more encompassing as it relates to a lot of the kind of commerce tech players' areas of expertise.
1: So I think there's been two dynamics. Let me let me go back in history a little bit, which you'll remember well, Deb. Um, when when my former business, Profit Logic, grew um, in the kind of early 2000s. The, the reason so many major retailers in that era, brick and mortar retailers predominantly adopted what we were doing was because they were in pain and they were in pain because this giant retailer with incredible efficiency and incredible scale was eating their lunch. In that era, it was called Walmart and everyone was trying to respond to the incredible supply chain and data and IT efficiencies the Walmart had created to build their business and they were scrambling. And that created opportunity for new companies to be formed that could do for everyone else all the way from big retailers like Macy's and Coles and JCPenney to small ones like Jimboree and American Eagle and others at the time. But to do for everyone else what firms like Walmart were doing in-house with their incredible scale and resources. Roll the clock forward 20 years, and I think you're facing a similar phenomenon, but exacerbated. You've got the dominance of Amazon and their ability to leverage data and tools and technology to press their advantage. And others are scrambling to try to keep up. And then you've got this proliferation of online sellers of all types. If you think about the Shopify ecosystem alone, there are a million merchants, a million, that are on Shopify, thousand of those, probably more today, that are on Shopify Plus that are actually a reasonable scale. And, and that, that's created Two phenomena. one is you've got more and more brands that get to scale and need help. They need tools, they need technology, they need data to help run their businesses more effectively. It's also created an incredible market for startups to sell to. Back in in the early days of enterprise software, when I was building my former company, we had maybe 200 prospects in the US and another 200 in the rest of the world to go sell our software to. Today, the startups that we've highlighted in the commerce power players list, essentially have the million merchants on Shopify to sell to. And certainly tens of thousands of those that are at scale. So the opportunity for technology companies to be born and grow quickly has changed dramatically. And I think that's lent to um, the growth uh, of some of these incredible um, recently formed companies that we've highlighted on our list.
0: You talked about this important kind of capability around like Shopify to Shopify Plus, right? I mean, you talk to some of these companies, first of all, many that you and I have never heard of and never will. And, you know, I'm like this, this, this growth and this kind of really like exponential growth. And they, I mean, they're literally like kind of like beating their chest on how amazing the experience has been and just seamless.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that is that, that is a total game changer and it's what's led to the proliferation of, mom and pop sellers who have said, oh, I don't just have to have a physical store. I can actually sell online and do it simply and in, in a turnkey fashion.
0: You know, it was so interesting during the pandemic in March of 20, myself and, and a few others, we founded a philanthropic organization called Retailers United. And, you know, first it was about getting kind of PPE into the hands of those who needed it and then into the hands of retailers. And then right, once once that mission had kind of been fulfilled, we then turned towards retailers who were not digitally native, and in many cases were quite analog, and tried to help them kind of get onto right, you know, this this digitization. And so many of the companies that we, you know, kind of highlighted in this Commerce Tech Power List, right, were ones that we actually kind of really focused on in terms of being able to help because some of these companies were quite large. Right, they just were analog.
1: Well, well, in in the pandemic, I'd say. Uh, for, for all of the obvious, incredible challenges uh, for so many associated with the last few years. It was an incredibly positive accelerant for the digitization of businesses in general, and particularly true in the commerce world. So those that were laggards that really hadn't thought about selling online, hadn't thought about buy online, pick up in store, hadn't thought about curbside pickup. All of that became a reality very quickly one of my favorite stories from this era was a company that, that Ben Capital was an investor in at the time Michael stores and Michael stores had been kind of experimenting and testing the idea of curbside pickup for three years uh, pilots and conference room pilots and tests and evaluations and really no launch and then the pandemic hit and within a week they had curbside pickup live across the chain
0: oh it, it right. was unbelievable. I remember talking to Rite Aid, who went on to Instacart. That's a whole other podcast. Um, not Rite Aid, the Instacart part, but, you know, this idea that, like, you know, things that you've been talking about or thinking about for years, you know, overnight you can make decisions. And I do feel that the the startups that were, were chosen to be part of this, you know, these two lists, right, uh, basically those... The incumbents and kind of those who are, uh, you know, up and coming, if you will, that they, in terms of just their DNA, they're very comfortable with this kind of, you know, acting, you know, kind of acting very quickly Mm -hmm. and in a constructive way that enables retailers to feel a level of confidence around maybe technology solutions that they've thought about, but they weren't really comfortable with and, and moving forward very quickly. So if, if we kind of go into this next question with that as a backdrop, as, you know, this list was put together with, you know, kind of an advisory board and a selection committee and others, what were the challenges around, you know, kind of taking, I mean, Scott, you've, you know, literally met so many startups, you've, you know, had an impact on so many How did you think about kind of the the narrowing of this? And what were the roles of others in the ecosystem to help us get here?
1: Yeah, two really good questions. It's a really hard universe to narrow. And the the problem was you can't limit it to 10 or 20. There are just too many great companies. And so step one was narrowing the categories um, down to a narrow slice in which we could highlight 10 or 15 companies that truly had differentiated themselves. And the way we did that for this initial go round was to focus on, um, essentially, personalization uh, and the customer experience as opposed to other really important technology areas in commerce like store operations and supply chain and logistics, where there are lots of other terrific players, um, but that for another time. So we narrowed the categories, number one. That unfortunately caused us to leave many off the list who play in these other arenas. We're we're investors in an amazing company called ShipBob, for example, which manages the fulfillment for thousands of Shopify brands. Um, But that's logistics. And we just left that we left that aside. The other thing we did very intentionally up front, as you well know, was um, thankfully get the participation of Coresight and Bain & Company. Um, And while some may be confused about the relationship between Bain Capital and Bain & Company, Bain & Company is the consulting firm completely independent from Bain Capital. Same name, same heritage from its founding, but totally separate businesses. Uh, And our goal was to expand our purview, to make sure that we reached out into a broader ecosystem of retailers and brands that Coresight has phenomenal relationships with and Bain Bain and Company does as well, Um, and to provide a level of objectivity in the selection of the list, because needless to say, we have many companies in our portfolio that we, we would love to see included on the list, and certainly not all deserve to be. Um, So that was kind of the initial step in evaluation. And then the next step was to solicit input from those constituents, Um, in particular, the advisory board and selection committee, but more broadly, all of the the operators in the retail and brand landscape. And the key focus for soliciting input from those folks was examples of value. Um, We were less focused on amount of venture funding, revenue growth, et cetera. Really more focused on specific examples of value add, where we knew these vendors had had a huge impact, and that ultimately is what allowed us to kind of align around the list that we created.
0: So Scott, you know, you mentioned kind of logistics. Obviously, you know, my, my heritage pre course site was at Li and Fung, and spending ninety-nine point nine percent of my time focused on supply chain logistics and the future thereof. Right where you have. It's interesting, I think the pandemic actually fueled many startups in this area. Where you know as you think about kind of you know version two dot of this list where or three or four or five, where does supply chain logistics from your world, where does that kind of fall on the hierarchy of what's critical right now?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think the important um, important effort next is to get input from our retail partners folks that responded to the survey and really hear what they have to say on this topic. Um, What are sort of the biggest leverage points and the biggest pain points as they think about their businesses over the next five to 10 years? My guess is there will be a fair amount of focus on supply chain and logistics, but I also think there's a lot of focus on stores. Um, Yeah, shockingly. um, Yeah, I think it's a really interesting next wave and I, I expect to see a lot of interesting innovation as a result as retailers rethink the importance of stores in the omnichannel equation and creating customer experiences that feel more and more frictionless in-store. And there is so much infrastructure, technology-wise, required to do that well. Very few do it great today, Um, but the the foundations are being laid. I I, I did a a deep dive uh, around RFID over the last six, nine months having not looked at RFID in retail for a decade, uh, and was, was interested to find that so many retailers, particularly in the apparel world, um, are further along in RFID efforts than I could imagine. It seems like almost table stakes now. And it's been driven by the incredible reduction in cost of the tags from 4 bucks to $0.40 cents to $0.04, cents and down from there, and the increased importance of inventory visibility in store. Right. Because, Unfor-
0: it- well, unfortunately, because of organized retail crime, right. This, this idea of, right. You know, well, first of all, right. During the pandemic, right. If it's not in stock, you can't sell it for BOPUS or whatever. So I feel like that was kind of step one of this. And then, you know, I like keynoted at NRF protect and had, you know, three retailers who are dealing with this at, you know, levels, you know, I mean, every and it's, it, Nobody's safe, right? It doesn't matter if you're grocery, if you're drug, if you're apparel, if you're footwear. I mean, it's it really has completely changed the the landscape. And so, what I've found to be very interesting, and I think it's just this idea of right, you know, kind of the it is what it is. And so, the retailers who are doing what they can through Washington, right? And and we'll see how that evolves. Now, the thought process is just right. How do we if if we are you know, subject to you know, kind of ORC, we still want to make sure that we you know, for the ninety percent of merchandise that that we are able to sell in store, you know, kind of you know, which somebody's paying for, how do we make sure that we are in stock on that? And it's funny, Scott, because I've actually thought back to like when we first met many moons ago, around right, you know, we were talking about demand forecasting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's I gotta tell you what I still find you know, very interesting. And I, I agree on RFID and we've spent, of course, I, I mean, I spent a lot of, you know, when I was at Fung we actually own an RFID company. I mean, it, this is an area we have gone really like narrow and deep on and have written many reports. And, and I think, so I'll tell you Scott, what I think is interesting there is like the move into like Bluetooth, understanding the exact point in time where um an item goes missing i mean we've literally we've literally been in the you know <laughs> i guess you call it in the back room or the you know the room where it happens right and looking at footage and understanding on bluetooth tags what happened why did it happen and you know and what are we kind of going to do about it are we going to show up at somebody's house and knock on the door maybe in some cases we will Right. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm particularly intrigued by that exact same technology evolution for RFID. So you probably know the company Radar, just as an example, mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting example, leveraging Bluetooth and optical to have real time visibility to all items in the store and understand movement of items in store. And part of understanding movement can be for merchandising and marketing purposes, because you figure out where customers are spending time and when they're picking stuff up and putting it down, et cetera. Um, and interesting ways to retarget customers who pick up an item and try it on and put it down, certainly. But um, also, there are incredible loss prevention applications. And at least from the, from the feedback I've heard from folks that have tested with or are rolling out Radar, uh, the loss prevention pays for this stuff on its own. Um, the, the, the inventory visibility, the ability to make sure you can fulfill orders from store the right way or push that order to the next store, is gravy and incredibly valuable, um, but there is so much leverage in understanding real time what's in store. Uh, I think this will become table stakes in retail in the next decade.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We've uh, we know Radar well, and we've also worked very closely with Nexite, mm-hmm. which has you know kind of seemed to find a right. I, th- I think actually they they coexist really interestingly. We've seen Nexite, I would say, on the kind of uh, Mastige prestige brands. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's and it's interesting to kind of see how the the two of them I think really reinforce each other very well because it is a newer kind of technology that retailers are embracing. And I think going back to what you said, right, this idea around kind of vision and you know understanding movement, understanding how to because there's there's a I feel there's a difference between like there there's this idea of serving the customer, right? I think with a radar and next side approach that. You know, in the kind of more traditional RFID, it's a bit more blocking and tackling. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a bit more full circle, which I find it's why it's very, actually very in, much intrigued me since I, you know, kind of first met both companies.
1: Yeah. Look, I think the reality is with traditional RFID and a good handheld scanner, you can, and enough effort from store associates, you can have reasonably good inventory visibility. As I understand it, uniglo scans multiple times a day and they actually really understand everything in store. Um, and so that's a high bar to, to to exceed. Most retailers don't do a great job, even if they have RFID, with employees scanning all items. Um, and so an automated system that gives you visibility all the time certainly has benefit. And if that system is then oriented toward or, or provides the capability for, um, helping customers find what they want more effectively, it's sort of an added bonus. It's not just about tracking inventory for replenishment purposes. It's about ensuring the customer gets what they want when they want it. That seems like the right next chapter.
0: So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what the heck. Um, How do you think about like a Simbi Robotics, right, which just did a major raise? And I mean, we've been tracking, I mean, I... We we've been tracking that space for a very long time. I I have to say, many of these companies have been so supportive of CoreSight over the years, right? We've done big events. They've like literally like brought in, right? Like you know the hardware, whether it was like Boston Nova or Fetch or or Simbi. And I have to say, I'm. It's one of those. It's actually kind of like RFID in a way, right? Where, you know, Walmart brought all of us out to their HQ, 15 years ago, and it was like ah the accuracy read rate is only like 96.4%. Ah, this is too low. And I feel like, right, you know, over time kind of RFID shook that. We had similar issues. I actually was with Walmart as well um, around kind of, you know, hardware kind of from a robotics perspective in store. It seems like we're on the other side of that. It's interesting that kind of, you know, one technology obviously being much earlier than the other, but that at the same point in time, right, we're seeing, right, and obviously with Simi there, right, you know, kind of scanning shelves more, I'd say in a grocery environment, right, because if mm-hmm. it's, you know, there it's even, right, with your turnover and your frequency of visit, right, your your chances of being out are much higher than in, you know, let's say an apparel footwear accessory store. Where do you think that technology is right now? Where do you think it's going? And how important do you think it is? I just call it robotics in general. And how does that kind of interplay with a Bluetooth enabled, right? Like, how do you see all of this kind of coming full circle
1: yeah i think the simple equation is unit economics um, i don't think a retailer any retailer really has a preference around an optical or bluetooth related solution to understand inventory on shelf in store et cetera, versus some robotic drone you name it solution that runs around your store and scans things on a regular basis it doesn't matter, right? As long as it's safe and it doesn't knock people over, right? Which can all be solved. Um, the real question is cost: how much is yeah. the capex, and what's the payback? And that equation for retail for retailers has not been great historically. It's getting better and better and better, and it also hasn't been great for the vendors. The vendor so the vendor solution is. Well, I know the retailers are unlikely to plow all of this CapEx dollars into the ground up front, so I'm going to offer it on a subscription basis. Well, that's fine. Someone's got to buy the hardware. And the people who then have to buy the hardware are the vendor with venture capital money, which is doable when money is cheap and much harder when money is expensive and it's harder to raise capital. So I, I I don't think any of this reaches real scale across the retail landscape until the cost equation changes dramatically.
0: Which is like what happened with RFID, right? It, it's like the, the the tags had to get to a certain level. And I think that, you know, you, you kind of hit that inflection point. I think it took longer than many of us would have expected.
1: What What, 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 what is you- interesting on this front, though, and it's not dissimilar to what's happening if you follow the world of microchips, um, it, it is interesting that the winner will probably be a monopoly there will... Yeah, it because, has to be. Because scale matters so much in driving down the cost curve in these hardware-oriented businesses, um, if, as an investor, you have the wherewithal to fund a leading technology company, I think you can end up with the lion's share of the business.
0: Well, that's why... I, so it's it's fascinating. So See, Scott, even if we don't talk every day, we still think very similarly. Um, that's why I was so intrigued with NextSite when I saw Intel, right, as one of their major backers because I'm like... <laughs> I mean that that in and of itself says everything, right? In terms of this idea around scale, yeah. and you know whether it's an Intel or a Qualcomm, right? I mean those are kind of the, and there are others, but if, if I think about kind of from a domestic perspective, you know that's where it gets interesting. And then what do you think about one other question on on this line, with regards to companies who have, been, and we've seen some of these in like the shop talk startup pitches, right? Whether it's kind of like on shelf, you know, kind of cameras. How do you think about that technology? Again, because it's... again,
1: it's just cost. Uh, we've, we've looked at a bunch, um, The at least three, four years ago, there were a handful where the cost equation seemed better than other approaches, um, which makes it more interesting. And then there's just this combination of what does it cost me and how accurate is it? Yeah. And retailers aren't dumb, right? People test stuff, they're smart. They, if, if these things have an impact and a real ROI, and a payback that is reasonable, you know, measured in months, not years, they will adopt. Um, I think it's notable in the example of Radar, for example. We're not investors, by the way. I have no horse in the race here, um, but I think it's notable that American Eagle found enough value that they're rolling out across their chain. That is right. not insignificant. Um, hope you know. Hopefully, we'll see that in, in other environments, and that that's not an anomaly. But I think the, the same the same is true for these examples in grocery. With optical or cameras, it's got to be inexpensive enough and easy to deploy enough that retailers are willing to go through the pain and agony to get the benefit.
0: Yeah. I remember some of the like tracks we know well that I think I actually had met them at, you know, kind of on stage at one point. And, you know, just some of the photos that they had illustrated during the pandemic, right? Of, you know, Just the items that were out and, you know, helping retailers kind of think differently about all of this. And that I thought was really interesting. So Mm -hmm. back to kind of the rising stars list, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: how do you think about that in relationship to everything else? And, you know, it's very easy to have a list, right? There's a lot of lists of 100 companies out there. Five is difficult. I mean, it really is. I mean, the discipline around that, Scott. That's that's tough.
1: Yeah. um, Look, I'm sure there are tons of rising stars that we missed. Not not purposely, but I'm sure there are plenty of great early companies that we missed. You know, the handful that we aligned around had a similar, um, similar phenomenon to the larger companies, which is a number of major retailers that are piloting or adopting the technology said I've looked at all the players in the space and these folks are the best. So that was sort of criteria number one. Criteria number two, um, which was explicit in our minds, was that there are uh, uh, an increasing number of companies started by diverse or underrepresented founders um, that don't get the play because they're not often, you know, uh, flush with venture money the way others are and yet may have real impact in the retail world. And we want to make sure we um, we track those and and gave them credit as well. And so interestingly, while that wasn't the primary criteria for either of these lists, I think close to half of the companies included have either a a female founder or an underrepresented minority founder. And that's hard to find (laughs) in the technology world. Maybe it maybe it's five of the 15 um, or six, Uh, but we were happy to see that as an output. As opposed to an input but certainly we were conscious of it um and and then i would just say net net um you know it it is not unrelated to the success of these rising stars that they are able to attract top tier venture capital funding that is not necessarily um an indicator of success but it does say something about the founder and the early signs of value and so that was meaningful to us as well
0: it's funny. I think I responded to Lily AI kind of like I don't know if it was like a LinkedIn post. I'm like, I think it was when we rolled out this list. And I'm like, I literally remember sitting down with her. It was like in 2016 at like the Battery in San Francisco, and I'm like, I can't believe it was that long ago because she was so early, and what she was talking about. I mean, first of all, it's been amazing that she's like literally kind of. I mean, of anyone who's got focus, I, I would follow her all day long. I agree with you. And has been very on message, has been very clear. You know, in some ways, maybe she was a, a little early, but it's, I mean, I remember when I first, like I said to her, I said, I just remember when I first met you, how like logical this seemed. Actually, it was like when I met you, Sky. it was like one of the same things. It's like, why isn't everybody using this? Right. And so I have to say, I remember, I remember meeting, I mean, actually of the rising stars, the three out of the five of them I knew before this list, they were all they all had that like, I can't believe everyone's not using this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's to put three, like I said, and just the other two I've gotten to know now. But it is interesting when you think about how hard it is to curate a list like that. But when you look at it, you have that same feeling about all of them. It's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, and and Deb, you hit on something I think really interesting. And 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 Perva at Lily, I think is a good example of this. Each of these companies has a founder who is incredibly persuasive in their conviction about what they're trying to build and the transformation that they're trying to enable in the retail world, whether or not the industry understands it yet. Um, you know, I think I think Natalie at Eon is another interesting example, right? Digital ID and this digital provenance for every item will be a thing. Um, she is so ahead of the curve. She is you know, putting the industry on her back to evangelize and try to drag everyone along with her. And eventually they'll get there. But I give her and that company a lot of credit for paving the way.
0: She was on one of our shop talk startup pitch stages. And I remember sitting there listening to her and I was like, yeah, once again, this is like with my Lee and Fung hat on. And I was like, of course, right. We need to, and this. And I'm, I'm I, right. From my perspective, I think more about authentication of yeah. luxury goods. That was like the perspective I was coming from now, once again, with ORC and, you know, Thread and all of this, like, it's just a completely different kind of topic of conversation. But once again, she was just very early. Yeah. And I remember when she was on stage and people, when she, like, people were like, really, it was one of those moments where people were like, I want to hear that pitch again so I can digest it because it's so different than anything that I've heard.
1: Well, And what's interesting in that environment, and it relates to Archive also, Archive Resale, which is a platform for enabling uh, you know, resale on, uh, on a retailer's site, um, either P2P or, or direct from the retailer. Um, I think it, in both cases, you've got this confluence of incentives that haven't totally aligned yet, but are interesting to hear. If you talk to retailers that are doing resale, or doing digital ID, or both, often it's being driven by some ESG initiative. It is not necessarily being driven by some economic incentive. There is a hope for an economic benefit, but the driver is ESG. And as an investor, that raises a big question mark. Is this really ultimately going to be a durable part of their business model? Um, It surely has to create profits if it's going to be so. On the other hand, there are a bunch of players who are doing resale, as an example, who already are seeing interesting economic benefit, both in retail and resale on a standalone basis and in the attach rate associated with incremental full price sales. So I think we're not yet in a world where everyone has figured it out, um, but the tailwinds are driving adoption, which is terrific. And hopefully the economic results will then create a, a groundswell. Because I think this whole world of digital ID and resale is good for the environment. It's good for consumers, and ultimately should be good for the retailers.
0: It's like you can look inside my head. I have this like LinkedIn post that I've, you know, it's one of those. It's like it's been sitting in my drafts for a while, and I'm like, I, you know, this is such a kind of politically charged topic right now. I'm I'm very I'm very much walking a delicate line, and sitting on uh, several public boards and being a former CPA, I am on every audit committee and ESG rolls up to audit. So I have probably for CEO of my own company, right? Like spent an unbelievable amount of time mm-hmm. in this. And it. I, I will say the amount of models, the number of models in terms of, you know, peer-to-peer, on-site, one of the philanthropic organizations I'm on the board of, right? We've actually been not in the U.S., but in Europe, right? Which is obviously much farther ahead on this topic. We've been helping them kind of aggregate all of their product. We've been authenticating it and kind of getting it basically ready for resale and then handing it over to them. <laughs> it's phenomenal it was brilliant, honestly, on their part to do that through a charity, right? Because we're obviously gonna charge them a very different rate, if you will, than than, you know, a for profit. And the the opportunity, because I don't think going back to I also believe like what you said about RFID, I think it applies to this as well in terms of I think scale is really, really important. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I think we are right or wrong, we're in the early innings of adoption.
0: Very. Yeah. Very early. All right. So let's let's close this out. We've 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 like, you know, kind of been through many topics. What was your right when you kind of took a giant step back and thought about what this list might mean longer term. And also, you know, really kudos to you in terms of Scott, this idea of around just like 10 names, right? And five, right? How, how does this kind of, you know, as you look out five, 10 years, how do you think about this? Because it's a community that, right, really started with you, then included Coresight and and Bain, I mean, and you know, now many others. But how do you see this developing and where do you see this going ultimately? especially as we kind of start off the the podcast talking about right why this whole ecosystem has developed and you know understanding many of the other dynamics right now where do you see this going
1: yeah i think if this is done well it's going to grow organically as opposed to as a result of any brilliant insight from me or others you know around the table who have helped launch it and what i mean by that is if we're successful then we will have identified each year in whatever categories we focus on, the companies that are truly adding the most value in the retail ecosystem and those that have the best shot at being the next generation of great companies. Now we're not gonna get all of them right, but if on balance we are getting more right than wrong over the course of the next 10 years, I think this power players list will be viewed as sort of the gold standard of how you identify companies that you should really take seriously if you're serious about improving your business in retail. That's our hope.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'll, we've had several retailers reach out who take a different stance, which I, I really like, as they're working with startups and that they often invest in them. Mm-hmm. And so now you're truly kind of both, you know, kind of on the same path and focus forward. And that's been really interesting as it relates to this list in terms of you know people wanting to kind of get to know these companies more. And right, are they open for investment? Has been the kind of
1: yeah. And and look, I think that is that can be good um, for the for the vendor. Um, it can also not be good. And so I think you know retailers have to be cognizant of the fact that if their investment comes with strings attached, it's ultimately going to restrict. The startup's ability to build their business, um, because not every other potential customer of that startup is going to want retailer X Y Z in the cap table. Um, if there are no strings attached, I think that's a different story. If it's purely an economic investment, um, that maybe comes with a commercial relationship, which is fine. So I think I think you've just got to tread lightly if you're in the startups, you know, shoes on that front, and make sure that you're partnering with someone who is aligned on the idea that we're trying to help you be as successful as possible. We're not just trying to make sure we have an unfair advantage for ourselves, even though I understand that incentive. It totally makes sense. Um, The other thing I would say, and I've mentioned this often when asked the question about major retailers rolling their own solutions versus partnering with vendors. um, It is very rare. And I'd say the exceptions are the very small handful I can count on one hand of Super massive scale retailers who do a good job building their own solutions for anything. The nice thing about partnering with vendors is that vendors specialize in an area, they wake up every day thinking about just that technology and how to make it successful. And they have the benefit of having done it across dozens of retailers, not just within one, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands. And so I would just encourage the retail and brand universe before they buy into the idea of rolling their own on any front um, to kick the tires of the best, the best vendors in the world, hopefully several that are on our list um, and consider whether they're better off getting a real solution to market for themselves faster and better working with a great vendor than trying to do it on their own.
0: Yeah. And I'm, i I want to kind of close out it, it, because it was one of those things that the minute you heard it, you're like, this makes so much sense, but I'd not heard it before. So, we were on stage at NRF this year with the CEO of Woolworths, you know, Woolies from Australia, and they had made a major acquisition of a technology company. And so what they're doing is they're selling their IP outside of their own markets, so outside of Australia and New Zealand. And so this is where kind of, you know, the the sum is greater than the parts mm. and this opportunity to really drive, I think going back to like just where we started, how do you compete And, you know, this idea of scale and leverage, you know, that to me was just such an out of the box idea that we're still seeing, right? It's still very early days. So maybe the jury's out, but, you know, certainly an opportunity for for one retailer to do something for the kind of whole ecosystem. Obviously, there is a profit component, but there is really something about, you know, a retailer led technology solution, one that they did not create but that they're helping to kind of shape now that is going to, I think, pay back in terms of some significant benefits going forward. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. Unusual. So we,
0: It is, <laughs> you know, it's not often that you're like, I haven't seen that before, but that was definitely one of them. So, all right, we'll conclude there, Scott. So many pearls of wisdom. We can't wait to see what's next on the, whether it's the kind of power players or rising stars, what's next for this kind of commerce tech power list. And you know, who knows if supply chain and logistics might be next. So thanks for joining us, Scott Friend, bank Capital Ventures partner, always words of wisdom. We thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great.